just like to know, you talked earlier about the observation of some, I forgot the name. Uprostatade. Yeah, what is that? Oh, Uprostatade, yes, okay. Um, well, <clears throat> in the time of the Buddha, um, he, was, uh, he was approached by King Bimbisara, who was one of his followers, uh, uh, or I don't know if it's proper to say a king is a follower of a homeless person, but you know. <laughs> anyway, and he suggested to them, he said that, uh, that uh, there should be some opportunity for lay people to, uh, to spend time with the Sangha and to receive the teachings. And the Buddha thought that was a wonderful idea, and so he established uh, uh, the uh, practice of observing uh, what is called Uposata Day, and that was originally, at that time, we followed a lunar calendar. So that corresponded to the, uh, 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 each of the quarters of the lunar calendar, which is approximately once a week. Um, and that, that tradition continues to until today in, in some Buddhist countries, but not all. Uh, and usually what happens is the day that the monasteries are opened up and the lay people from the community are welcomed to come and spend the day, or in some cases the day and the night, uh, meditating, uh, listening to teachings, and uh, observing uh, precepts that go beyond the ones that they normally observe. Um, in the time of the Buddha, uh, it's interesting, he first introduced this, and uh, of course one of the, the instructions is that uh, on uh, in the cycle of the Posita days that the monks are supposed to recite, get together on a Posita day and recite the the uh, Wanaya, the, the rules of uh, conduct. And at that point, uh, monks would uh, uh, confess any transgressions to uh, to their precepts and to the code of conduct. Um, and then the Buddha comes along and says, well, from now on, the lay people get to come and join you on the Posetan days. And at first, the monks didn't like that. So they just sat there stony-faced and meditated. And so those are very interesting sutta. The Buddha really kind of brings them out for that and says, when these people come, <laughs> you welcome them, you teach them. And it's become a well, uh, well established, as I say, in some parts of the Buddhist world. Uh, I, I have reintroduced it here because I think it's a wonderful idea. In our society already, we have the custom of the Sabbath, uh, a, a weekly day that is uh, set aside in our society for people to engage in, in spiritual practices and religious observances. And for years, we did this on Wednesday, and then we changed it to Monday, and then finally we got smart a few months ago and said, well, Okay, Sunday. So now we do it on Sunday. We don't follow the lunar calendar because that would put it on a different day of the week every time. So we just do it on Sunday. But the idea of observing Uposita is that that's a day that you take out of your usual activities. I like to think of it, uh, you know, the way the uh, Jewish uh, uh, Sabbath is, that from sunset on Friday to sunset on Saturday, uh, it's, it's not just, you know, you 
go to church or you go to synagogue for an hour or two. It's that that entire period is regarded as being sacred and is devoted to spiritual activities and to spiritual practices. And so that's what I, I, that's what I would encourage uh, lay practitioners to do, is to try to observe a, a posita. Take a day, if you meditate for 45 minutes or an hour per day normally, take this day that you'll do uh, longer meditations, or maybe you'll do two sits or three sits, and, uh, uh, and put some additional time into studying uh, the Dharma or doing other practices. And so we observe Uposita uh, out of the stronghold uh, by inviting everyone to come. And uh, we do, we actually repeat the same uh, formula at the beginning of it that is always traditionally done in the uh, Theravadan monasteries and temples when the doors are open to the, uh, to the lay people there. Uh, told that the Uposita hall is available, it's open, it's ready to and then, and then meditate and receive teachings. So we've been doing this for a while. And actually, my inclination now is to, is to expand it somewhat. It's, it's the sort of thing where people come. We usually do a teaching and uh, two sessions of sitting meditation with one session of walking meditation. And then by that time, it's already after 1 o'clock, so we have something to eat. Uh, or potluck lunch. And then <clears throat> at that point, everybody goes their different ways. But I would like to expand it in the sense of encouraging people perhaps to stay longer, meditate longer. Uh, I might make myself available for more personal uh, meditation interviews and, and uh, to discuss other aspects of the Dharma in addition to the talk that I usually do at the beginning. So that's what the Iposita Day Observance is. Thank you. Anything else? And go home now? <laughs> <laughs> yes. I've recently had a, a death in, in, in the, a, a good friend of the family died. And I'm curious to know what your take is on the, on the whole idea of the bardo and, and, this, and that space that is entered after death. Why do you ask? You know, I've read a little bit about it in terms of, of, of Buddhist uh, um, philosophy and so on, but I, I remember that I once asked you about reincarnation uh, or rebirth, and you talked about that. So, you know, it's, you know we're all going to die, so what, you know, what is your personal take on this in terms of your understanding of, 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 of what Buddhism says about it? Well... The self that we believe we are and that we are attached to in our thinking it doesn't really exist. It's a construct of the mind and it's, uh, it's created anew all of the time and, and it isn't anything like a 
persistently existing reality to start with. So most of the time when somebody thinks about the idea of rebirth or reincarnation, they are imagining and hoping that that, uh, that, that self that doesn't really exist, uh, that there's going to somehow going to be some kind of uh, uh, a continued existence of the non-existent thing. <laughs> More than anything else, it's the mind's, the mind's own fear of its dissolution, or our fear of death. And so there's a certain comfort that can be had in the idea of reincarnation, which is a very old idea. It's an idea that uh, long preceded the birth of the Buddha, and uh, which was more by the vast majority of the people at the time he lived, it was assumed. And the spiritual path that people pursued in those days was dedicated from, you see, what became obvious to some people was that to continue to be reborn meant to continue to go through all of the trials and tribulations of a human life and to die again. So rebirth meant re-death, or reincarnation meant re-death. And so not only did most people at that time take reincarnation uh, for granted, because this is what this was the common belief in society. Uh, for and, and most of them, therefore, also believed that they should uh, uh, perform the duties uh, uh, and responsibilities that they had within their their society, their caste, and their family, so that they would have a good reincarnation. But amongst those more philosophically and spiritually advanced, they, there was a different idea, and the object of the spiritual path was to obtain uh, a permanent liberation from the cycle of rebirth and redeath. So this was the, 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 uh, this was the <clears throat> the current view and the point of the practices at the time of the Buddha. <clears throat> There's variations on that, and there was one group, not a very large group, who were materialists, and whose assertion was that there, that uh, at the time of death, the self uh, was destroyed and no longer existed. Yeah. <clears throat> When, when the Buddha was asked questions about uh, reincarnation, he responded uh, by putting a different twist on it. He, uh, and in Buddhism, most of the time in Buddhism, the word reincarnation is not used. There is a very clear uh, acknowledgement that the self that one would suppose is reincarnated uh, doesn't really have any substantial existence. It's just, it is a creation of the very mind that does dissolve at the time of death. 
And so the word rebirth is used instead of reincarnation. And when asked, what is reborn? The answer is that the accumulated karmic propensities uh, are what is reborn, which is to say that they, uh, it, it's, it's like an inheritance. <laughs> that, there will be, that there will be beings in the future who will have various tendencies and propensities, both of a good kind and a bad kind, uh, or as a wholesome kind and an unwholesome kind would be better to say, which uh, can be traced to uh, beings who have existed before and lived lives and acted and thought in a way that reinforced these propensities. So in that sense, the Buddha himself did speak of something that passes uh, from one psychophysical entity uh, on into the future. Okay. There's much been said about uh, try, trying to under, understand this and interpret this in various ways. But but the idea of reincarnation is really a rather simplistic idea, and it it uh, in a more sophisticated understanding, you would have to say, well, there is no such thing as reincarnation. There is no self, no personality, uh, no mind of a of any sort of constitutive substance which intact passes uh, between uh, from one person to another but rather that that which might be described in those terms is something that is conditioned transient uh, uh, it is a composite actually the individual consists of the five aggregates which we talked about before and those five aggregates are constantly changing. And so uh, self is an arbitrary designation of convenience. It is functional. We apply it to, uh, I apply it to this five aggregates and to that five <coughs> aggregates and that and so forth. And it serves a functional purpose in terms of how our individual minds function. But it does, there is not corresponding to that any sort of permanent and abiding soul or a substantial entity, but rather something that is rather a process of, uh, a, rather a combination of a number of processes that are continuously in flux, that are conditioned in various ways and constantly, constantly changing, and that they temporarily come together in a particular uh, uh, place and time, and there is the conventional notion of individual that we consider. So then, the really deep question is: Okay, take somebody that you know well and, and you love 
And the question is, what happens to that person when the body dies? And we would like to believe, and this is quite a part of our own fear of death, even if we were going to live forever, you were immortal. When somebody that you care about and you're close to dies, you would like to believe that they, that, that being continues to exist. That would be a very comforting thought. And you would hope that it would be in some kind of beneficial circumstances. And the notion that that being might uh, acquire a new body and be reborn somewhere else nearby. You know, it's, it's all a very comforting thought. But if you think about it, there, there's just nothing to hang, hang that on and, and to make a truth out of it. So this might appear, this does appear as a great loss. It's horrifying. You mean that this person that I love ceases to exist at the time of death. And even to make it worse, it's going to happen to me someday. And it is a fact that understanding it in that way, seeing it that way, it, it is a horrible, what you call, truth. The disturbing truth. Enough to make you eager to believe anything else that would, would say something different is true. But on a path of liberation, we're trying to see we're hoping that there is a more deeper and profound truth, uh, one that uh, that we that we can take with a lot of certainty, and that will remove the pain of that notion. And that is indeed what we find. Um, first of all, just to point out to you that the person that you are fond of. Uh, and that dies for you uh, only exists in your mind. The person that exists in that person's mind, who they think they are, is not the same one that's in your mind to start with. Right? And not only that, um, the person that they think they are is constantly changing. It's not the same person, but it's convenient that we mostly are not aware of that, and because the, as they say, the child is father to the man, or the self that I am right now will determine the nature of the self that I am ten minutes from now and tomorrow and so forth. So there is that continuity. And, and so we do cling to that. But as we go deeper into this, we discover more and more that the, the transient, the constructed, the conditioned uh, nature of anything that we would try to identify and cling to uh, as, as being a self uh, the more we look, the less we find. Instead, what you will discover about yourself 
is that you are a collection of a huge number of inter-acting uh, mental processes, each one very simple in itself and, and way too simple to, uh, for you to care to attach the designation of personhood or selfhood to. And, uh, and when they're all put together, uh, they, they are the raw material from which we create our notion of self. But they don't have, their, their true nature is to be uh, a moment by moment generated, mind generated product of, uh, of circumstances, of experiences, of events, actory, acting, interacting with stored traces of past events. And so that's what we are, and that's what passes away. Um, but if we go into this a little deeper, we realize that what, what is essential to the notion of self, any notion of self in any form, you know, and, and we can say, okay, I may, still, I may be a packet of different mental processes and bits and pieces, but I'm still me. What is it that makes me me? It's a notion of separateness, a boundary, something that makes a distinction. So when there is the true loss of self, it is essentially you lose yourself, but you gain the world or the universe or, or everything. Because uh, the illusion of selfhood, of separateness, is actually the source of our suffering and the source of our fear and, and everything else. So, when someone dies, or something dies, that you care for, you have to realize that, if you can realize, that all of the ways that we see it, that this, this being did exist but no longer does, and this self that knew and loved that being uh, has now lost that, that this is all an illusion that there is a, a, a very dynamic interaction of all kinds of processes taking place, physical and mental. And uh, it's easy for us to recognize that the material components from dust to dust, that that, that, that being that we love, the, the, the body that came together and that we loved, was drawn from, from little bits of everything everywhere constantly changed and then at the time of death we'll go back to, to dust to everything else as well. Um, it has a reality in our mind and that is real but it doesn't have the kind of reality that we the kind of substantial reality that would make us cling to it and that and that, that does make us cling to it and does make us suffer. We look at the mental part of it and we tend usually to, it, it seems to us as though uh, that the, 
that the mind is something totally different from matter. And we would, you know, and so we can easily uh, imagine that the, the mental aspect of what we are or what the being that we love that has died, that that uh, continues. But we are going to imagine that continuing not as it really is, but as uh, as something that we have created in our minds. And it is a substantial truth that that is not the case. You will, you know, if, if the person or uh, the being that you love dies, that uh, they existed in your mind due to causes and conditions which were dependent upon their materiality and the way their mentality manifested into interaction with yours during your life. So, they will exist in your mind as long as your mind exists. But just as the material constituents of that being will go to become parts of other things, perhaps other people, perhaps other animals, perhaps of the dust and the water and, and the air and so forth, so too at the level of the, the mental that there is, it is not a substantial coherent identity, yet it doesn't cease to, uh, it does, it, it, everything continues to exert causal influences in the future. And so the mind that has been the mind that has conditioned itself and therefore has this karmic constituency may not hold together as a single entity, but they, that karmic uh, that karmic complex doesn't cease to exist. It extends into the future and it continues to uh, it will continue to manifest within the realm of mentality. So, from all, all of what I'm describing to you here is from the point of view of conventional way of seeing things, that there is mind and there's matter, and there's two different things, and that there's self and there's other, and that there's, there's the self and the other entity that you love that dies and everything like this. Um, the ultimate truth behind that is that there is no separation between mind and matter. And there is no separation between self and other. On the level of conventional reality, uh, we have no self and the being that we love has no self. But we are processes, and the, there will be consequences, future consequences of present and past processes. And so the being we love will, in a sense, manifest again, but it'll never be the same person. But those, and also there's no reason, it's like, it's sort of, to help you understand it, it's sort of like genes. You can pass along your genes. 
And those genes will cause other beings carrying your genes to manifest many of the same physical characteristics. But they're not you. Although we come into this conundrum that cloning, well, if I could be cloned, maybe that would be me. But it's really a good thing to think about because if you were cloned, would you be the clone? even though you were completely identical? Well, no, of course not. So somehow, somehow the sense of identity that we put in there is gone. And it's, it's the same thing, but although in the stuff uh, that ultimately this process of existence unfolds within, although within that stuff everything is interconnected, and uh, causally interconnected. So therefore, your existence or any other being's existence, in a sense, extends indefinitely through, uh, although it goes beyond time too, but you know, if, if, you get a, if you want to imagine it in a temporal sense, it goes on infinitely in every direction and uh, forever in time. So it never really ceases. But what we attached to was just simply a temporary aggregate of influences that constantly interact. Now when you look into some of the things that are said in Buddhism about rebirth, for example, it's said that uh, you know the idea of, will I be reborn as this person? And the answer is uh, not necessarily. Because just as the moon can reflect in a thousand different ponds, puddles of water, you know, so can any one entity uh, have effects that manifest in the future in multiple ways. And also, is what I am, is this the direct result of what another entity, another being, was. No more than you are physically and genetically. That karmic tendencies we see in the world and in individuals interact with each other and come together. Uh, They form packets. You are a packet of interconnected karmic tendencies. In the future, they'll tend to hold together. But that doesn't mean they have to completely hold together. And uh, just as you find that you have a karmic affinity with other people in this life, so too in the ongoing in the ongoing process in the rising and passing away of being, so do different kinds of karmic affinities come together. And, and contribute to each other. So, a being that passes away is not really, in one sense, any more gone than they were before, because they were no more really existent before they passed away than they are afterwards. So, it's, yeah. In this context, um, what is the Tibetan Book of Death? 
fit, how does it fit in with all the different stages of body to purify it, whatever, when there is no death, when there is no self, when there's not even a body, how does it fit in? Uh, well, these are, these are practices and belief systems that serve different goals. Um, I, I think it would be a, a, an enormous mistake to assume that they were describing an ultimate reality because uh, they are not. They are, they are completely empty of that. Do they, do they correspond to, you know, well, let's back up a little bit. Okay, if we look in Buddhism as a whole, there are some schools of Buddhism that say that you know, when they're discussing rebirth and when they're discussing it in those terms which really sound like reincarnation, they say uh, that uh, when the person dies, that, that there is the, uh, the chuti chitta that cuts off <coughs> and it gives rise in the very next moment mm-hmm. to a chitta and a new building, a new, new being. And there is no, there is no gap between the two. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there is the, the, the Tibetan teaching of bardos, of all of these stages in between. And you say, well, my goodness, which one of these is true? But you see, both of these, both of these views are based on a, uh, another set of views that says, okay, there really is some kind of something that is, a, is like a self or a soul. And so both of these are discussing different ways in which something like a self or a soul can pass from one life to another. Mm-hmm. So when you, go, when you go beyond the surface level of describing it, uh, then you can then, then you have to set aside these presumptions that don't fit, and you have to say, well, okay, what's the deeper meaning in this? So I, I think that the Tibetan Book of the Dead and the theory of bardos is a way of looking at things. And at one level, it serves a purpose. Because in all of Buddhism in the world, there are these multiple levels. There is the Buddhism for the common, not well-educated uh, uh, Buddhist practitioner, which is intended to help guide them in their lives in the best possible way. And then there are the corresponding versions of these exact things, which are reserved for the... Uh, uh, for the, the interesting word that's actually used by scholars is for the virtuoso Buddhists. Okay. <laughs> virtuoso Buddhists, the ones who study uh, study the Dharma and interpret it in its deepest and most profound meaning, and also who do the practices which bring them to the place of being able to directly confront and recognize and accept the the truths that are so disturbing to the non-virtuoso Buddhists. So you have you have teachings that serve multiple purposes, and so 
there, there are like different levels of interpretation. At the superficial level, Buddhism throughout the world seems to espouse the idea of reincarnation. And this is good for the average Buddhist because it gives them some moral compass and it gives them some motivation to try to live and behave in a virtuous way. And even living as a lay person and having no hope of doing the practices and attaining awakening and enlightenment, they might be highly motivated to live in the best possible way they can so that perhaps they can be reborn in the next life in a circumstance that allows them to to practice in a way that they can achieve awakening. So you have, throughout the, throughout the Buddhist world, you have this apparent teaching of just plain old-fashioned Hindu Vedantic uh, reincarnation. But it can be reinterpreted at more and more deeper, deeper levels. I don't personally know what the deep interpretations of Bardo are and how they are used. But uh, I know that Tibetan Buddhism, uh, uh, just as much as any other form of the Buddhism in the world, in its virtuoso sense, recognizes fully that, uh, that there is no self, no soul, no entity that can undergo that kind of continuity. And, and of course, that just takes us to the scary level. Oh no, I didn't want to hear that. <laughs> but, but you have to go through that level to get to the level that you, that, uh, you know, to the deepest level, most profound level, most profound understanding, is that uh, that is a level at which the self in the sense of separateness is transcended. And so, therefore, know where there is no separation, no separate self, there is nothing that can be lost. And, um, and, and there's really two parts to the process. <clears throat> the one part involves the, the Evolving to the point where you understand the truth uh, that, that is summarized in the word emptiness and the application of that truth uh, that is applied in the word no self or anatta. When you come to truly understand that and realize that and your brain makes a shift and your mind stops functioning on the basis of these being substantial realities. But you still experience a separate self. You still are a, a mind with a, a, a sense of self functioning in the world. But you're liberated from many of the things, but not all of the things that are associated with that. So that's the first stage. Coming to the point of, of knowing the falsehood of the apparent substantiality uh, of, uh, of discrete objects and of self and realizing the, uh, the emptiness of everything. The second phase is where you move towards the point 
of the dissolution of separateness, the ultimate disappearance of self. And at the culmination of the second phase, then that is the level of awakening at which there is total liberation and there is no possibility of suffering, no possibility of clinging to separate existence. And it's functioning from a totally different place. Uh, But of course, the first one I mentioned is also functioning from a totally different place. But... uh, but the two are very different from each other. The first is called, in Buddhism, is called stream entry, or darsana marga. And uh, afterwards, the person just, you know, doesn't see things the same way anymore, not with the same attachment to self-view. And when someone they love dies, they understand it in a way, you know, what I feel like is talking to you, if I describe it the way it's seen, it does, doesn't sound very, very satisfying. But it actually is, is much easier to accept. Their mind may still respond with a sense of loss and longing and so on and so forth. But there is a kind of understanding that... Uh, doesn't cause the same same sort of grief and suffering that otherwise would take place. But there is still there is still this even though there's not a, a, a belief in a personal self, there's still a feeling of being a separate self. And so then the second stage is called arhatship or uh, Buddhahood. It's where where the person completely and finally transcends the illusion of separateness and realizes the true uh, non-dual nature of ultimate truth and ultimate reality. And so that person, as you know, the Buddha being an example, this doesn't mean, like some people think, well, this must be some kind of, uh, you know, person be a zombie after that, right? It's sort of what what kind of a what kind of a being could there be that you know goes around not even knowing that they're a separate self? Very difficult to uh, to uh, understand from our usual point of view. But what we see, what we see historically with those beings, and what we see if we're fortunate enough to come in contact with them in this world is that they are a mind and a body. The five aggregates are still there, percolating away, doing their thing. But there's a difference about them. Those five aggregates are existing in a state of non-suffering bliss, happiness, contentment. And that the mental part of those aggregates are able to interact with other people and circumstances that arise from a completely different place, from a place called wisdom rather than ignorance. And the actions that are performed by that person, instead of coming from a compulsion uh, called desire to have, to grasp, you know, to, to take to oneself, 
they uh, and also coming from uh, aversion and the desire to push away, destroy, avoid, so forth. That instead, the the thoughts and the words and the actions that arise out of the functioning of those fully integrated five aggregates is out of loving kindness and compassion. That's that's what that's what the motivation of the Buddha is: loving kindness and compassion. So. Descriptively, it might sound a bit, you know, like, well, either a little hard to understand or a little hard to appreciate the, the value of it, but that's the essential nature. Now, I just discovered a very interesting, uh, <clears throat> I just started reading the introduction to Bernadette Roberts' uh, The Experience of No Self. Does anybody know who Bernadette Roberts is? She's a Christian, modern Christian mystic, I believe, alive today. Anyway, she she had these experiences recently, uh, and I'm sure she's still alive today, well, unless something happened in the last year or two. Yeah. But um, she describes <coughs> herself in entirely Christian terms, exactly these same same notions of, first of all, the overcoming of the the view of the personal self, which she describes as the overcoming of the ego self and discovering the, the uh, self that has uh, union with God. And this is also, by the way, what the Vedantists speak of when they talk about overcoming the little self and discovering that that really and truly, although we feel like we are the little self, uh, we our, our, our true nature is is the big self, the, the ultimate self. These are uh, Vedanta uses very similar conceptualizations to Christianity, and so there's a lot of similarities in the descriptions uh, that you don't find in in Buddhism, where it's described mostly in the negatives that there is. Uh, that there most of the emphasis is not on the discovery of a true self or the uh, union with God, but rather the realization of the illusoriness of, of the personal self. But anyway, then she then Bernadette Roberts in the book that I just read the introduction of today, called The Experience of No Self, is discussing the end of her 20-year journey. Because she reached that point that in Buddhism we would call stream entry, or the realization of the true self in, in Vedanta. And then she talks about the next thing that happened, which she complains is not described and discussed adequately in the contemplative literature. And she's absolutely true, it's not. It's, uh, but it is, uh, it is the total dissolution of self, and she uses the same words, is the total dissolution of the sense of separateness. Mm-hmm. And she still, you know, whereas we might speak of the, uh, uh, the uh, <coughs> Buddha nature, or we might speak of uh, emptiness or nirvana or something like that, of course she uses the word God as the reference for the ultimate truth and the ultimate reality that there is no longer any separation from. 
but it is the same thing. Anyway, I've gone on quite a bit on this topic, and I really deviated a lot from the original question. But if you're going to be serious about studying this path, uh, all of them, any kind of notion that tends to support the belief in and attachment to a separate, separate soul self entity, uh, you're going to be asked to look at as closely as you can, uh, define what it is you think it is, and then see if you can actually find something that meets that definition. All for the purpose of discovering that it's really not there. (laughs) That it's only a projection of your mind. And there is a bit of a dark night of the soul when you still feel like yourself, but you haven't got one anymore. (laughs) But then... But then it all comes together in just the right way and a shift takes place and it's like, oh, what a relief! (laughs) What a relief to know that I don't have a self anymore. How much easier it is to accept that every moment of conscious awareness is an absolute glorious experience, part of an absolutely magnificent adventure And aging and sickness and death, this is all part of it, and no moment of it is any less magnificent and glorious than the rest. And this this is true of that which occurs in others as well, not just ourselves. So, totally different take on on death there. But you did ask about the Bardos. And all I can say is, that's a different system that I don't really know the deeper interpretation of, but I have total confidence in there. I imagine Keldon or some of the other people here that have studied it could, could, could uh, fill that in. But I, I know there has to be the deeper interpretation that goes beyond what is obviously an inadequate superficial appearance of, of that. And that it fits in within a particular teaching system. And so we look at it and say, my goodness, these say that the beginning of one life starts with the end of the last, and these ones say there's all these bardo stages in between. Which one's right? And that's, uh, that's, not, a, that's not a useful question. It's, it's, uh, if you look at this view within its context, it will lead you to the same truth as if you take this view and look at it in its proper context. They're all concepts. They're all mental fabrications. They're all storytelling for the sole purpose of bringing about a more profound understanding a realization. Any other things here? Yes. Uh, to, in in uh, the Dalai Lama's autobiography, he talks about having been chosen uh, as a small child um, because he could identify things yeah. that he believed were his in his former incarnation, which was the previous Dalai yeah. Lama. Okay. 
Yes, as a matter of fact, and this is something that's been, uh, that's even been studied by Western scientists, but uh, doesn't happen very often, it's comparatively rare, but it happens very, very consistently all over the world, that children below a certain age, usually ceases around, somewhere around age five to seven, can sometimes have, have uh, surprisingly clear and accurate memories of uh, things that pertain to uh, another being's existence. Um, and that, I think, is a, a, a clear demonstration. If you ever doubted that we are, on the mental plane, we are totally interconnected and we are not separate, I think that is a clear uh, uh, indication of that. What I would say is that a new set of five aggregates, a new physical brain functioning in a particular way has a tuning that can tune in on the resonances. So um, that's why you would expect and you would hope it doesn't always turn out that well. But hopefully, if you find a young child who has resonances with a very highly developed being who has now passed away, that that, that would be a mind that uh, is, is tuned karmically in the same way. And so that would be a perfect individual to take that training to. And uh, so, now if you, if you, if you read the uh, autobiography, of, is it the autobiography of Dalai Lama? Or, yeah. okay, I'm not sure if I read it. If you read the history of Tibet, which has a huge amount of uh, uh, autobiography of, of uh, Dalai Lama in it, uh, I don't think that's, that maybe the subtitle of it. Anyway, it's, a, it's a, a book that is the history of Tibet uh, written by uh, a Western writer who spent hundreds and hundreds of hours in interview with the Dalai Lama putting together the history of Tibet. And there is a lot of the Dalai Lama's own expression in there. And in there, it's interesting, it's very interesting to pay attention to the terminology he uses when discussing the previous Dalai Lamas and his relationship to them. And, you know, it's never in the sense that I was this person but rather that he experiences certain resonances, but only with certain ones of them, and there's many of them that he has absolutely no resonance with at all. But um, as a child, he was certainly able to tune in on the on his predecessor enough to choose the right implements that were presented by the lamas, and even after he was taken to uh, to uh, Lhasa, and uh, to even recognize or have a sense of familiarity associated with places and objects and things like that. But it's also, it's clear to anybody observing him and knowing the, uh, the history of the 13th Dalai Lama, and it's really clear to him, and he says so himself, that they are not the same person. They, uh, you know, they... They're very, very different people. And there's no sense that, that, that I used to be this person, but rather I have certain resonances with, and I feel that, that 
I understand why my predecessor did these things this way, and I think that my predecessor made a mistake doing those things that way, and so forth. Interesting, because when I read it, I made up my story. Mm -hmm. And now, it's it's good to hear you. And what's your story like? Well, my story was it was the reincarnation. It was a simple story, but it was really romantic. And I liked it. <laughs> <laughs> well, we do. We love these things, you know. And, and it's great when we meet somebody and we hit it off with and say, you know, we must have known each other in another life. <laughs> and in a sense, that's true. Because in a sense that is very difficult to understand, we actually all are the same person. You know, not only... Not only did you and I know each other in a previous life, we, we are each other. You know, I, I could say, I was you in another life, and you were me in another life. And, uh, and isn't it neat that we're both here at the same time? <laughs> so there, 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 is, there is an ultimate total lack of separateness that we would assume that is there. Maybe it's, 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 it's not that it's an error to assume that you are the reincarnation of this person. It's an error to assume that you are not a reincarnation of all the others. <laughs> but in any one of us, we can only hold so many tendencies and characteristics together at one time. So so we have to represent the unique set that we are, which may have a lot in common with uh, others and almost nothing at all with yet others again. And uh, not only that, it's interesting to see that in very young children, before they have acquired their own memories and their own personality characteristics and all this other stuff, that they can tune in on another mind, or sometimes other minds, sometimes plural rather than singular. Anyway, we've gone on enough tonight. Probably far too much. It was very helpful, as you said tonight. Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. I always, whenever I get drawn into talking about this, I'm worried that I'm going to scare you all away. That it's not, <laughs> I, 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 I'd, rather, I'd rather still exist. I think I'm going to go find a different teacher. <laughs> matter of fact, I'd like to exist in a paradise with uh, palm trees and gardens and uh, virgins or whatever. Virgins are the only <laughs> but I, I tell you what, what I, I, you know, it's wonderful to pursue a path of truth that doesn't require us to delude ourselves or to accept things that can't be verified and validated through our own experience. And you don't have to believe that you don't have a soul until you find out for yourself. 
Although, one of the things that I need to talk about, and maybe we'll start talking about this uh, when I come back, is soul creation. So I'll just leave you with this thought. You are, as the Buddha would say, the five aggregates, or you are a material body in flux and a whole pile of mental processes all interacting and competing with each other and, and, and making stuff happen. And so there really isn't the kind of self, the kind of soul that you'd like to have in there. But you know what? If you can get all of those mental processes uh, unified, in tune with each other, um, purified of, of, of all of their bad programming, and enhance all of their good programming, so that instead of being a whole mess of tendencies going this way and that, you have a unified mind, maybe made up of just as many different mental processes before, then you have created what is actually a pretty darn good facsimile of a soul. And if you do a good job of it, it's going to be a really beautiful soul. And if you make it really tight and really perfect and it functions really well, then when your aggregates fall apart, then that pseudo-soul is going to have an imprint that isn't going to stop and uh, it might show up in a whole lot of people. Thousands, maybe. So, And they'll reach a certain point in their lives where they'll say, you know, I have this sense that I could be so much more. Maybe I should try to bring that about, you know, and just keep on snowballing until eventually all sentient beings are <coughs> fully awakened. So that's another way we could look at this. You know. There is no soul, but we can create one. <laughs> so, okay, well, thank you very much. And, uh, see you three weeks from tonight. <laughs>